It's Jeff Levering for Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Check out that effortless horizontal window slide and the best lifetime warranties in the industry. Order by April 30th and get 0% for 48 months at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Great to be with you today. I'm Tracy Johnson, filling in for Jeff Wagner on this election day in Wisconsin. Also a great Tuesday during Holy Week 2023 and a big news day. And I understand that I have the best laid plans here for a three hour show. But I have a feeling this may be uprooted by some breaking news. So we are going to proceed not with caution, but with confidence. So I'm here with producer Charlie. Um, and again, for those who don't know me, I'm Tracy Johnson. My day job, I serve as the president and CEO for the Commercial Association of Realtors. I am a mom of two young boys, a wife, a runner, a Marquette Golden Eagle, and a lifelong Wisconsinite. I filled in for Steve Scafidi when he's out and will join him quite often when we talk about business policy and real estate news from time to time. Uh, I invite you to be part of the show on the old National Bank talk and text line, one 616 Again, we'll be following breaking news related to President Trump's uh, indictment and arraignment, as we're expecting to have some news throughout the show. We'll also be keeping our eye on the weather, uh, which I've heard could wreak some havoc on southeastern Wisconsin. And, of course, as mentioned, today is Election Day. Um, it's the spring election, which has always been said to be a lower turnout election. But absentee ballot requests are breaking records, and the lines at the polls I'm hearing are very long and busy. Wisconsin has about 3.5 million registered voters, and from what I'm hearing, at least what the woman at my polling place told me on Friday when I early voted, she said that 25% of the registered voters had already voted early absentee or by mail. And Eric had referred to some numbers, about 400,000 early absentee ballots requested. I mean, this is a huge number, and this is going to break records in lots of ways today on Election Day in Wisconsin. This, of course, is a nonpartisan election, which you couldn't tell, which you couldn't tell uh, by listening to some of the some of the ads. Um, but it's a very important statewide race is on the ballot. All right, now it feels like a show. Uh, I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're continuing to follow uh, breaking news out of New York as former President Donald Trump is in the courthouse right now awaiting arraignment. Uh, there are no cameras allowed in the courthouse, so we might have a quiet period here for a while, but we expect that we'll break in uh, as those events unfold throughout the afternoon. Just a quick comment on that is, you know, to think about all the things that are happening in our world today and the amount of attention something like this is receiving. It just really is is shocking. I'm sitting here in a studio and there are four televisions, all different stations, and they have this ongoing streaming coverage of this this event. And as Eric and I were talking about earlier, just think about what this looks like 
to the rest of the world. You've got people on one side supporting the president and people on the other side who are just can't even look at him and they're protesting. And it's just such a crazy time in this country and this world. And um, again, we will continue to follow this throughout the day. But getting back to the show, there are so many other things, like I mentioned, happening in this world. And we're going to talk about them on today's show. Anywhere from what's happening in in New York City with Amazon. I mean, speaking of a crazy city, Amazon, as we learned a year ago, have formed an employee union and they are struggling now to get that off the ground. Of course, it's election day and we are going to have some guests on the show who are running in these important elections. Uh, former Justice Dan Kelly will be joining us at the one o'clock hour and Senate Candidate Dan Canoto will also be joining on this very, very busy election day. But I want to turn to a local story. And yesterday, Governor Tony Evers signed into law a much celebrated piece of legislation. And it's a celebrated piece of legislation that targets an issue that we talk or Jeff talks about a lot on the show. And I know is very, very important to me and to many of the listeners This law would allow for the towing of vehicles in certain circumstances in which the owner is involved in reckless driving. So this would be a state law that local municipalities, including Milwaukee, uh, the driving reckless driving capital of the world could of Wisconsin, I should say, could enact and enforce. This is an effort to put stricter laws on the books to make people feel safer in their communities In 2022, in Milwaukee, almost 500 reckless driving citations were given out, and this is up from 375 in 2021. And 2023 is on pace to break all of these records. This driving is leading to death and mayhem in our communities. People don't want to come downtown in some cases. They don't want to live in these communities. So Representative Bob Donovan, who was recently elected in Greenfield after serving on the Milwaukee Common Council, co-sponsored this legislation that passed into law in bipartisan fashion. You always want those bipartisan laws. And when you have a a Republican co-sponsored piece of legislation signed into law by a Democratic governor, you know this is good legislation. So again, this would allow the municipalities to tow and impound vehicles whose owners had reckless driving citations. So is this going to work to curb reckless driving in Milwaukee. Our number is 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. Or is this just another law that could go on the books and do nothing? Because we talk about a lot the, the, the issue with enforcement. So you can have all the laws you want on the books, but it's the enforcement of those laws. Representative Donovan says, today, a strong message is being sent to those that blatantly disobey our traffic laws, threatening the public. The law must be followed or you will lose your vehicle. But is this going to work? Does this matter to the people who are driving recklessly in the city or in the state for that matter? This is a statewide issue. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation said about 2,900 people are injured in reckless driving crashes every year in the state. And last year, 119 people were killed by reckless drivers in Wisconsin. So will this work? Will this work to curb 
reckless driving in Milwaukee. Will people finally feel safer again? Our number is 855-616-1620 on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. We'll discuss when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. Our number once again on the old National Bank talk and text line is 855-616-1620. And we're taking your calls on the latest piece of legislation. Actually, the first bill that Governor Tony Evers has signed into law during his second term. And it is a piece of bipartisan legislation that is meant to curb reckless driving in our cities. It would allow municipalities to develop laws to tow vehicles that belong to those with reckless driving violations. So is this really going to work? From the 414, hi, Tracy. I'm curious how the city will handle stolen cars, right? Stolen cars. So, so if the owner of a car with a reckless driving ticket has their vehicle impounded, yeah, that's going to stop them. But aren't there stolen cars all over the place and people driving recklessly. I it just, it, I'm, I'm struggling to see how this works, how this actually works. Dan and Campbell sport. You're in WTMJ. What do you think? Oh, um, I got two things that I want to talk about. I go down to Pfizer forum for the basketball game. And uh, when you're driving through highway 100 to get down there, and I believe it's or 145. It is, I think anyways, Wow, the people that drive past you is just, they're going crazy. And they they blow red lights. They don't even see them red lights anymore. It's amazing how that happens. So if these owners... Then, okay. Go ahead. Uh, well, anyway, then, uh, then back on, when I drive through down to Chicago and then through Indiana and back into lower Michigan... You know, I, we, me and my son, uh, we bet on other ri- drivers. How many is going to smoke past us at 100 miles an hour more than we are going? And we, we seven to ten, we called. Wow. But anyways, Dan, thanks for the call. I think you bring up a, a good point. I mean, this this is a a serious problem in our city, and it's causing people to not want to live here. It's causing people to not want to come downtown. And you know, as Dan stated. You just know that this is going to happen. You know that when you're driving down the expressway or you're coming downtown, that you are going to be confronted. Because even if these people are getting tickets, these police officers are putting their lives on the line to even pull these cars over. So you have to have a pretty credible uh, idea. You have to have a good good idea on is this person going to pull over or is this going to be a situation where I'm putting my life on the line. But this reckless driving legislation where municipalities and and police can tow cars and impound these vehicles, is this going to work to curb reckless driving in our state? Uh, Kanisha from Milwaukee, you're on WTMJ. Hi, um, I don't think that'll work. I think that there needs to be stricter laws because, um, most of them are people who steal in cars. So if the car gets told, you know, I mean, it's no biggie to them because they'll just go steal another car. As well, they, you know, there's some people who will register cars for them. They have friends. They can drive their cars. 
um, you know, I've seen it firsthand where somebody will drive somebody else's car and tear it up, and uh, they don't care. You know, they'll use their girlfriends to buy them cars or whatever. So, no, that that is, is not enough. But is this a start, though? I mean, is this at least an acknowledgement that we have to do something? And then dealing with the stolen cars, is that maybe a next phase of, of legislation that can be introduced? Yeah, but it needs to happen fast because there's too many lives that has yeah. already been lost. Yes. Thank you, Kanisha. Um, you know, I think she makes a really good point, and a lot of the texters are, are chiming in. You know, this is about stolen cars, really, in so many ways. But I do applaud the bipartisan effort to really try to continue to bring to light. And WTMJ, Charles Benson and his team have done a phenomenal job of covering this issue. And hopefully the education and awareness can continue to put pressure on legislators to come up with solutions that can be acceptable across the partisan spectrum. Because at the end of the day, this is a problem that needs to be solved. We'll wrap on this when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on this Tuesday afternoon, this election day in Wisconsin. Also a crazy weather day and Trump arraignment arraignment day, which we're following breaking news out of New York. So we may dip in from time to time. But right now, a state issue, a recent piece of legislation actually signed into law yesterday by Governor Tony Evers in an attempt to curb reckless driving in our state. And really specifically, when I think about this, it's in our city. Now, this legislation would allow for municipalities to create laws to tow vehicles of owners with reckless driving tickets. But will this work, or is this just scratching the surface? Brian from Milwaukee, you're on WTMJ. Yes, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Great. Um, if if this is enforced, I'm all for it, because um, I witnessed a lot of bad things. I mean, one of the reasons I'm a safe driver, for obvious reasons, you don't want to hurt nobody. And if you drive recklessly, what will go up? Your insurance will go up. So, you know, I drive safe. I do everything by the book. And um, what makes me upset is, like, in certain areas, like West Dallas, Brookfield. I was in West Dallas driving one time. This guy hit me so in the back, just banged into me. He had no license, no insurance. And when the cops came, they just let him go. And I was like, he had no license and insurance. And you're just going to let him go? Yeah. They took and I was like... It's ridiculous. In my opinion, he should have been stopped. He was intoxicated, by the way, stopped um, and taken his car away. But they, they and then his answer to me was everybody in West Dallas drives without insurance and license. And well, I was like, oh, OK. But, but Brian, just like so if they enforce this, I'm all for it. Yeah. Thank you so much for the call. And, and Brian, it just is so many of these laws on the books. So Brian, who called in, said he is a law-abiding citizen. He has his insurance. He has his license. He was not driving intoxicated like the person who hit him. He's following the law, right? And if if you have law-abiding citizens following the law, that's great. It's almost as if those aren't really who the laws were, were designed for. It's the reckless drivers, the out-of-control drivers who are creating this mayhem and I would go a step further and I'm sure that this is part of the 2.0 of this legislation 
how do we deal with these stolen vehicles and how do we take the weapon, a.k.a. the cars, away from these people? But I think we are beyond putting rules on the books, especially with so many vehicles that are being stolen. And many of these citations are issued to unlicensed drivers and kids, for that matter. And we have a system that continues to push these lawbreakers out onto the street. And I think we need to do more to fix access, like I said, to the weapons, a.k.a. the cars. And we need to fix the people. And we're going to do need to do a lot more with our commitment to reforming the individuals or just like gun laws or smoking bans. We're just pushing the problem hypothetically and literally down the road. After the news, we're going to be joined by former Supreme Court Justice for the state of Wisconsin, Dan Kelly. He is running an election, this Supreme Court spring election. I'm going to ask him some questions that I haven't heard asked on the airwaves. You are not going to want to miss this. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It's 1258. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome back, Wisconsin. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. On this Tuesday, this election Tuesday in Wisconsin, uh, usually this is said to be a low turnout election, but we are seeing returns, uh, absentee returns uh, like no other. I was mentioning earlier, I was in the polling place early voting on Friday because who knows what would happen today. And they said 25 percent of the registered voters in my municipality had already voted. And I've heard that the activity is 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 there there's a lot of activity in the at the polls right now so I, I work in an industry commercial real estate where the supreme court really matters so we work as an industry with the legislature we work with the legislature to pass meaningful and mostly bipartisan legislation to be signed into law and we rely on a court that will uphold these laws which is why I am very glad to welcome today a gentleman that I believe will make a great Supreme Court justice for the state of Wisconsin, former Supreme Court Justice Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate this. It's great to talk with you. Yeah, and you and I have, uh, we go way, way back to days of uh, Milwaukee Forum. So I am just so proud to see the work that you've done and all that you've done for our state. And it's such an honor to, to talk to you today. So you are on the ground and you were on the ground yesterday all over the state. What is the mood as you are on the ground today? Well, well I think it's really, um, really hopeful, really excited. So what I hear everywhere I go and it's so reassuring to me is that people still treasure their liberties. They treasure their constitution because they know that that's the protection for those liberties. And so everywhere I go, I hear, you know, that, that people want a jurist on the court, not a politician. So the decision before us uh, by 8 p.m. today is whether we're going to have the rule of law or the rule of Janet. So the rule of law, pretty simple. We just take our directions from the Constitution. We do what we're commanded by the people of Wisconsin. Rule of Janet is her putting herself above the law. 
Uh, she's made it plain that if she's elected, she plans to put her thumb on the scales of justice to make sure cases come out according to her political agenda. And I think that folks across Wisconsin are going to reject that out of hand because they still want their liberties protected by their Constitution. They don't want just whatever Janet and three of her friends in a Madison courtroom might decide they can have. Uh, Dan, are you finding as you talk to voters that they've already voted? Has the the message to early vote, get it out of the way, has that taken hold with the conservatives and the Republicans in the state of Wisconsin? I think it's growing. Um, there are uh, all across the state. There have been so many people that have told us they come out during rallies and meetings and they've told us they've already voted. They're already out there supporting. And now they're working on getting others to come to the polls uh, and so I think that the turnout uh, in early vote is going to be uh, probably um, higher than it normally is, especially for a spring election. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's reassuring because a whole lot of things can happen on Election Day. And you never know what it's going to be. You know, uh, a foot of snow in northern Wisconsin, that's always a possibility. Uh, a work emergency, a family emergency, whatever, that might keep you away from voting. So uh, helping people understand the importance uh, of getting your vote locked in as soon as you can, I think, is is just top notch. we got to uh, continue focusing on that uh, for future elections, but I think that it's starting to get across, and we've seen that performance uh, in this cycle. Well, and there's so much at stake. As you mentioned, the polls close at 8 o'clock today. So if you didn't early vote, you still have time today. Dan, is your, you're out and about. What has surprised you the most about this campaign? Is it the spending? Is it the enthusiasm? Is it the, the, the types of rhetoric being placed on the different candidates? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there's, so a lot of that has surprised me. So let's start with the spending and the national attention. So it is now clearly uh, the most expensive judicial race in the history of the entire country, and that by a large, large margin. And I think that there's a reason for that. Um, This is the first judicial race of which I'm aware of, in which one of the candidates has openly campaigned on setting herself above the law. Uh, You know, our entire system of government rests on the proposition that there is no one above the law, especially those who serve in government. And yet my opponent has promised in advance that she's going to declare her independence from the Constitution, from the law, and from the people of Wisconsin if she gets elected. And she's just going to uh, implement her personal political agenda. That's brand new in judicial campaigns. And I think that's what's attracting, attracting attention from across the country, because if that works in Wisconsin, I think there are those who would t- pick that up and use it as a template to move courts in other states Uh, in a more activist and political direction. So I think folks are looking to see what the good people of Wisconsin have to say about this brand new and dangerous form of campaigning uh, and a a dangerous notion uh, that would eventually rob us of the rule of law and our constitutional protections. Yeah, it was stunning to me looking through some of the fundraising reports to see uh, all of the out-of-state money, Steven Spielberg, Kate Capshaw, I mean, Hollywood elites are yeah, weighing in yeah. on this election. And I keep thinking, why do they want to interfere and why are they trying to purchase this election for a national agenda? So speaking of that, you know, one word that I have used to describe you has been a, a person of integrity. Integrity seems to be a theme 
for your campaign. There have been lots of opportunities to go after your opponent on some of the personal issues and other things, but you've chosen to really rise above that. Talk about why integrity is so important to your campaign and to the campaign and work of any Supreme Court justice. Yeah, and I think, uh, thank you for that. Um, This has everything to do not only with me as a person, but more importantly, the work of the court. So, um, you know, Hamilton said 235 years ago that the court has neither the power of the purse nor the sword, but merely judgment. And judgment for its effectiveness depends on the integrity of the person rendering that judgment. And so I think that the, uh, the role of a Supreme Court justice requires great personal integrity. And so as I look at, um, at, at this race, and I've heard allegations about Janet, uh, and, and there have been people who have strongly urged me uh, to talk about those uh, because they believe that it would have an effect on the election. I've refused because I don't, I don't believe that that is an appropriate thing for a judicial candidate to do. You know, the work of the court depends on us being really careful about what is true and what is not true and being punctiliously accurate in our analyses and in our judgment. And I think that you don't, that's not something you just put on and take off as the occasion demands. You either have that or you don't. And so because my intention is to serve the people of Wisconsin well on their Supreme Court, um, you have to have that integrity from start to finish. Uh, And there's no way that that just to win a seat on the court, I'm not uh, going to relax those standards. I'm not going to traffic in allegations that that I don't know to be true. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, uh, but that's not for me to decide and certainly not for me to bring up in the middle of a campaign. I think that that would be, uh, I think that would be a terrible thing to do. Um, now, unfortunately, my opponent doesn't feel the same. Um, not only, uh, she doesn't, uh, she doesn't even wait for allegations. She just makes things up. So one of the things that I've learned uh, through this process is that running statewide means that you get to wake up every morning to learn something brand new about yourself that just isn't true. Uh, and it's just been, you know, in some ways it's, it's kind of amusing uh, because uh, the desperation that that uh, evidences is, is plain and palpable. But at the same time, it's infuriating because, you know, my dad, uh, when I was growing up, he taught me the importance of your name, of your character, and maintaining uh, that good name. And, you know, I, I, in running this race, I've had to deal with a serial liar who's had tens of millions of dollars with mm-hmm. which to just make stuff up about me and try to spread that around the state in an effort to win herself a seat on the Supreme Court. And I think it's disgusting. Well, and as somebody who's known you personally for, I would say, decades now, um, I know that that, you know, that is really hard to deal with when, uh, you know, a lot of these things aren't true. So two final questions for those who did wait until today to cast their ballot. Why should they vote today before 8 p.m.? What is on the line here? It's all it's the whole ball of wax. Uh, it's whether we're going to continue to live under the rule of law or instead trade that all in for the rule of Janet. Now, I remember, because I'm a bit of a student of history, uh, what it took to secure our liberties way back to the beginning. And, Tracy, you, you'll remember if you read all the way down through the Declaration of Independence down to that last line before everyone signed their names, they said that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And many of them 
they lost that. Uh, they died. They were convicted of treason by the British. Uh, they were bankrupted. But they did not count that a price too high to pay to secure those liberties. So today, um, we don't have to do that to continue to secure our liberties. We do have something we have to do, but we don't have to risk our lives. We don't have to sacrifice our fortunes. We don't have to lay down our sacred honor. All we need to do is vote. And that's, um, and that's a simple thing. And, and I'm a little concerned that uh, because the cost of doing that is so small, just get up and go, vote. Yeah. Uh, it's a small cost. But maybe people will value it a little. And I think that would be a, just a terrible, terrible mistake. And here's the way I look at it. You know, all the authority and power in the state of Wisconsin to create and maintain governments belongs to we, the people. And all the power to decide who sits in the seats created by their constitution belongs to we, the people. And that's an enormous amount of power. Now, Tracy, I've learned from Spider-Man movies that with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so there's all that power. Now here comes the responsibility to do something about it, to spend that small cost that it takes to secure our liberties by coming out to vote. And I think that if we, we do that, if we get, um, get a bunch of friends together that might not ordinarily vote in spring elections, then we're going to be just fine. Because um, I, I do think the people across the state of Wisconsin do continue to cherish their constitution and the liberties that it protects. And so we can secure that simply by standing up, going to the vote, uh, going to vote and letting everyone across the nation hear what Wisconsin thinks about the constitutional order and their liberties. And I'm confident that we do that. Uh, then this is going to be a very successful day. If we don't, well, well, then we have to start getting used to an entirely different form of government in which a, uh, a lawyer and three of her friends from a Madison courtroom dictates to us what laws we can and cannot have and what liberties we may may not enjoy. So I don't want that to happen. <laughs> I don't want to be the generation that drops the ball on 175 years of Wisconsin constitutional heritage. So, and I'm, uh, and like I said, as I go around Wisconsin, I'm, I'm confident that the uh, our fellow Wisconsinites still treasure this enough to stand up and protect it. Supreme Court Justice candidate Dan Kelly, one final question. Tomorrow is a new day, right? And you're yeah. going to wake up tomorrow and the election results will have been counted. What What are you going to do tomorrow? <laughs> I'm going to rest. Rest. I, have, uh, I don't think I've slept for the last two weeks. Uh, at least that's the way it feels. It's been great going around the state and, and meeting so many different folks. I mean, the last uh, the last few weeks, uh, you know, we uh, hyperbolically had the goal of meeting every single Wisconsinite. Uh, I think that came close. Uh, we just were out and about a whole lot. And you know, this is one of the uh, one of the parts about the campaign that I just absolutely love uh, is getting to talk to so many folks who care about their state, care about the direction of the courts, care about the rule of law. And uh, that's just been an absolute joy being able to spend this last several weeks with them. And uh, and it's been an incredible encouragement to me as well. Supreme Court Justice candidate Dan Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Good luck today. Uh, and uh, I, my prayers, my thoughts uh, and my hope is with you as we complete this Election Day 2023. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thank you. When we come back. A little more about the election and some of these campaign finance numbers. I'm Tracy Johnson, and for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
Welcome back on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson filling in for Jeff Wagner. Uh, big thanks to uh, Supreme Court Justice Candidate Dan Kelly for joining. I know that we have some people texting in, and thank you so much for that. Uh, this is uh, a show where we get to talk about the things that I have planned. And I know that there are some people who prefer the opponent, and I appreciate that. I am not having Janet Protosiewicz on the show, so if you are waiting for her interview, you can turn the dial, um, but I don't encourage you to do that. This is a very important and expensive election, uh, $45 million uh, flowing in from across the country. And voters, I want you to think about this. Do you want this election to be bought by people who don't live here? Think about what is their interest in motivating you to vote. Is it your interest as a resident of the state of Wisconsin? I sure hope that people will do their homework and think about how this really works, the role of a Supreme Court justice, not to create laws, but to enforce the laws. I work in the trenches every day with legislators who create laws. They create the laws. The Supreme Court justices uphold those laws. So I appreciate everybody who does their homework on this. I have certainly done mine. We have one more break, and afterwards we'll wrap this and lead in. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Welcome back. Great to be with you today on this Tuesday. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. I'm I'm really excited about this next segment, and I think it's going to hit close to home for many of you. And I understand that this audience, just like any audience, is likely split on those who have college degrees and those who may not. And right now, half of Americans have those college degrees, 53% uh, across the United States, which doesn't count those who may have attended college but not finished. So I would say a majority of people can connect with having made the decision to, you know, go to college, or sometimes you finish, sometimes you don't. But over the past several years, uh, with rising tuition costs and changes in the job market, and even some people questioning what's being taught in schools as it pertains to opportunities in the job market, there has been a healthier dose of skepticism around the value of a college degree. Uh, a recent Wall Street uh, Journal poll actually found uh, it was a nonpartisan research organization found that 56 percent of Americans think that earning a four year degree is a bad bet compared to 42 percent who retain faith in the credential. And the skepticism is strongest among people ages 18 to 34 and people with college degrees are among those whose opinions have soared the most. And I'm reading from the article here. So there seems to be a, a shift in the way that people are really thinking about the value of a college degree. And in, in 2013, 53% of Americans were bullish on college when 40% were not. So that this is eroding over time. So experts are suggesting that perhaps uh, the fact that there is so much cost associated and the, the, the debt, the student debt, is one reason that people are losing faith in the degree. 
Others are suggesting that it's just impossible to get the classes with so many liberal arts degrees that you kind of have to spend a lot of time just taking classes to catch up. And so a lot of people aren't graduating. So what is the value of a college degree now? Public skepticism towards higher education began to rise after 2008 and the recession, which was then compounded, of course, during the pandemic. Enrollment in U.S. colleges declined by over 15% over the last decade, while growth in alternative credentials, which is a very important factor, alternative credentials, apprenticeships, these things have increased sharply. And this was another interesting find that the value of a college degree, like skepticism, was greatest among, among Republicans and people living in those rural areas. So... Is this really something that colleges should be paying attention to? Is the value of a college degree the same as what it used to be? When I was in college or high school, I'm a Gen Xer, right smack dab in the middle of Gen X. That's just what you did is you applied to four or five colleges and this is just what you did and you needed a college degree. But it's so different now. The cost is so much higher. We just saw a 5% increase for state of Wisconsin schools. And the debt and the uncertainty associated with, are these people going to be able to find a job? So is the value of a college degree what it used to be? Our number is 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. You know, and what's driving this? I think that colleges need to pay attention they need to pay attention to what people are saying about the value. I mean, they continue to raise money and pour money into these capital projects, build these beautiful new buildings, upgrade for technology. But when the enrollment is declining at the rates that we've seen and the continued skepticism, and now add on to the fact that you've got a whole group of people, not a generation quite, but a whole group of people who haven't been paying their loans for a couple of years because of the COVID pause on on student loan forgiveness, you know, that could all be coming to a head. And that is going to propel even further the skepticism around a college degree. So is a college degree really worth what it used to be? 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. You know, I'm an employer. And I'm not sure I I pay attention to that anymore. I don't know. I I feel like the sands are shifting. And especially if you can go to college for a couple of years and then if you you decide to, to pause. I know a lot of people who have gone and then changed their major. They need to take a couple of years to gather the funds so they can go back, get some experience. And all of these things disconnect people from that education experience. So is the value of a college degree what it used to be? 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. Your reaction, my response when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Is the value of a college degree what it used to be, 855-616-1620 on the Old National Bank talk and text line. This is a hot topic. We may have to revisit this uh, for later in the week, really citing 
a, a recent poll that suggested people are losing their faith in the college degree. More than half of people surveyed said that it's just not worth what it used to be. And, and texters are, are suggesting, you know, with the cost of college double what it was in 2000, you know, how can people afford to do this? So is it valuable? Perhaps you need that piece of paper to get a job. But what is the return? What's the return long term? And are these jobs that people are getting degrees for going to even exist in the future? We talk about AI and the fact that AI will replace so many of these jobs in the future. What does this really mean? So we have the callers, Connie and Portage, you're on WTMJ. What do you think? Connie and Portage, you're on WTMJ. Let's go to Craig in Horicon. You're in WTMJ. Hey, Tracy. I, I was just saying that because, uh, yeah, Charlie kind of indicated I was a Connie. And, uh, I'm not a Connie. I'm a Craig from Horicon. You're Craig? I'm retired now, Tracy, but uh, I worked uh, a company, and I'm retired now. Um, but I, I worked uh, – most of my counterparts were either from Mexico or from Canada. Uh, and I'll be honest, I worked in uh, the greatest uh, – uh, business in the world, which was, uh, uh, adult drinks, um, you know, Kahlua and Canadian clubs. So right. that'll give you a Mexico and Canadian thing. But they were all, uh, college graduates and they were all engineering students, you know, or, or engineering graduates. And they made fun of Americans that, oh, well, you know, what, what's your degree? And I was like business. And they're like, well, that's not really a degree, is it? Mm. <laughs> and uh, it, it was uh, kind of hilarious. But, uh, yeah, um, I, I was going to say, does it really matter? No, I've had some of the brightest people working underneath me that, you know, uh, just barely made it through high school. But they were the best employees in the world, the smartest had some of the brightest ideas. I think it's where you're from because I, I, I do believe America is so great in in producing brilliant people from uh, experience. I don't know if that's the case in, in, in other places, but, you know, other countries do place a great deal of emphasis on education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one way of looking at it. However... Does it matter? I would say in the great scheme of things, um, experience is the, the greatest teacher in the world, Tracy. Yeah. It's so glad to hear you there for Jeff, and you have a great week, Tracy. Thanks, Craig. I mean, what a, what a great caller. Craig, you can call in any time. Um, you know, I think he makes a, a really good point talking about internationally uh, how folks uh, across, the, uh, across the globe have very specific degrees tied to their jobs, right? And and the fact that in America, we have such a focus and such an emphasis on the college degree. And I would argue that I think that piece of paper is what is needed for many jobs. And it has to do with the economy. And what is the supply and demand for, for workers at the time? In a really tight labor market, perhaps it doesn't matter anymore. But following a recession 
or in times like right now when we see so many of the tech companies shedding workers, uh, perhaps the tides will turn. And perhaps that's what this survey is suggesting. Let's go to Connie in Portage. Take two. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, I, I think we need to have the college education. I really do. My oldest son is a fishery biologist. What would you, how could you be a fishery biologist without a degree in that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have five children, all went to college. They all have fantastic jobs, big incomes. I don't know what their father wanted them to go to a little, you know, a little school somewhere where they could learn to do machinery, different things like that. And I didn't want them to because you have to know what you want when you're 18 to go to those schools. Mm-hmm. And most of the time at 18, you don't know what you want to do. And I called one of my professors and he said, send your child at least two years to college. Then that's an experience in itself. In the second or third year, they'll know what they want to do. And it worked out fine for my children. I, I just believe in education totally. Yeah. Well, Connie, you said you have a son who's a Marine. went to school to be a Marine biologist. Is is your son no, a, not a marine, not a fishery biologist, a, a fish, not a marine biologist. So is he working in that fishery field? biologist? Is he working he in, was, in the Mississippi? He's retired now, but he was on the Mississippi River for for 25 years. And, and that's and, fantastic. Uh, Go ahead. Yes, that that's what he did for until he retired. Yeah, and I think Connie makes a, a really good point about, uh, you know, at least experiencing college. I mean, the, the the college experience isn't just something that people say. It It is a real thing. It's about learning that mm-hmm. independence. It's about uh, having exposure to people from all different places and and then discovering what you really want to do with your career. And also in the context of understanding what the job opportunities are for the future and being able to pair that with your interests and with your passion. Connie, thanks for the call. Uh, James, on the south sure. side... You're, James on the south side. You're on WTMJ. Yeah, don't don't you feel that uh, you should work for your college degree, not to have uh, what Joe Biden wants to do? Uh, the government bail you out, uh, uh, paying for your college education, and then uh, maybe you do, you only do, only go a little bit of the time, and you waste everybody else's money and stuff. Where when you were growing up and everybody else was growing up, that uh, you work for an education, maybe got scholarships and everything else. It, it, it was more meaningful, not now where, where you're asking for some uh, bailout by the government yeah. or some other which way to uh, to, to uh, float your uh, college yeah. education and stuff like that, further education type stuff. Yeah. And James, I, I think that you your sentiment is shared uh, by a lot of people who may have made a, a different decision. And I, I certainly think there needs to be some reconciliation between being able to make a decision about moving forward in a career and, and you know, being a part of a society. Because I agree with you. I don't think that college loans should be forgiven. I've said this before on the show, and I know that we have a series of uh, court decisions coming up in the next couple of months that will secure the fate of that. But, you know, I think we need to have an equitable solution for people who decide to pursue that education and for it not to harm the people who don't make that choice. James, thanks for the call. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, I think this is a shifting time. Not only is the job market shifting, employers' needs are shifting, um, and and frankly, students are shifting, and and especially in a time and day and age when 
the cost is such a factor. And there's so much uncertainty around college debt. I think we have a a ton of great callers, a ton of great texters who make really fantastic points about the value of education because college education is important and it's part of our uh, country. It's part of our future. It's part of why we are such an innovative place, but it's not a one size fits all solution. We'll have more when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, lots of great discussion on, you know, the value of a college degree. Uh, stick around in the 2.30 hour, 2.30 half hour. Um, we'll also be talking a little bit more about jobs and employment and the future of the workforce. So this is an issue near and dear to, to my home and to my heart. Uh, but right now, the the news is next. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, brewer season, man, sports season in Wisconsin. I'm Tracy and for Jeff. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now filling in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome back, Wisconsin. It's great to be here uh, in the studio. This time just flies. It flies when you're having fun and when you're in the middle of all this breaking news with the weather and uh, the arraignment of uh, former President Donald Trump and on Election Day. It's just it's a great feeling. And it's a great uh, group of people here who are delivering the news. And speaking of which, uh, not breaking news, but also today is the day that playoff tickets for the Bucks go on sale they have secured the opportunity to play the first two games which are yet to be announced at the Pfizer forum so because of their seating number one seed uh they will be watching the bucks and so you can buy those tickets today but it's such a, a great season in wisconsin with the bucks and the brewers you have NFL talk who knows what's going to happen with aaron Rodgers? the ncaa tournament just concluded um, you know, and it's just a really great time to be a Wisconsin uh, sports fan. And I want to talk a little bit about the Bucks and just the experience of being in the game. They have a, a, at the at the game, they have a few uh, opportunities left this year uh, in the regular season. Tonight they play away at the Wizards, and then they're back in town tomorrow against the Bulls, and then Friday against the Grizzlies. And if you haven't taken the opportunity to come downtown and go to the Pfizer Forum, I encourage you to do so. And I don't know if Giannis is playing. I don't know who's on the starting lineup. But I have a feeling that they are going to play their very best. And they are going to deliver the very best show for the fans of Wisconsin. I was so fortunate. I took my son to the game on Sunday against the 76ers. He wanted to see Joel Embiid, PJ Tucker, uh, James Harden. He wanted to see the game and see him in action. Um, although he, of course, was cheering for the Bucks. But these guys put on such a show. And it was almost to the point where I thought. Even the 76ers players were having a blast playing against the Bucks. I, I mean, they were so fun to watch. And I, I think you can see a lot of that on your television if you watch from home. 
But just being there, you realize that the fans in the stands are so important to how the Bucks are playing. And, you know, I have seen this team over the last couple of years. I used to be a season ticket holder, uh, but just because of time constraints and just the, the sheer cost, I've not been able to do it. But I've watched this team grow and develop and the fans and the, the ownership and how they've really integrated with Wisconsin. And it is just a sight to behold. If you haven't haven't had the opportunity to get down there this year, I encourage you to do so. Every single one of these players has a story. And it's so interesting to see their personalities come out. I think the Bucks ownership and the marketing team has done a fabulous job of really showcasing that through the the fan engagement. Um, uh, it's just really, really phenomenal. We're so lucky to have this team in Wisconsin. And as someone who worked on the arena development uh, through kind of the Park East development and working with the team and trying to make sure that the team stayed here, I think we are all seeing the results, the economic benefit of having this team here and having the national international spotlight right here on Milwaukee and to see the further development you see the trade hotel opening uh, I believe the end of May which is going to be a premier NBA hotel I was talking to one of the sales uh, sales folks over there she said that there is an NBA floor with 14-foot ceilings. So this this hotel, which is located right across the street from the Pfizer Forum, is going to be where the, the visiting players uh, will stay when they're playing the box. And they've designed this specifically for the box players, which I think is is so cool. And I think there there's still more to be seen uh, from this development. There's still more to be seen uh, of this team. And to realize that we have history in the making right here in Wisconsin. So those playoff tickets are on sale today. We don't know the dates, of course, as of yet. I think they're going to announce that later this week. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Coming up next, although this is a nonpartisan election that we have going on in Wisconsin today, we there is one partisan race on the ticket. And we will be talking to candidate Dan Canodal when we come back. It's 216 on WTMJ. Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. On this Tuesday election day in Wisconsin, we have the opportunity to talk to a couple of the candidates who are out on the trail. Obviously, as we've talked about, this is a nonpartisan uh, election. However, there is a special election on the ballot, and we're joined today by Dan Canodal, candidate for Senate District Number 8 which happens to be my district covering Milwaukee, Ozaki, and Washington counties. The seat was vacated earlier this year by Senator Alberta Darling. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tracy, and your part of uh, Mequon will play a very important part in this election today. Yeah, so what are you hearing on the ground? I know you're busy knocking on doors. Well, my uh, me and my campaign team will be uh, shopping for new shoes okay. in, the, in the very near future. We have burned up some shoe leather, but we have uh, received a very positive uh, and recently a very motivated uh, constituency that uh, is, uh, I think, getting to the polls, and uh, that's the key. 
Well, and you represent a, a very, I would say, diverse area in terms of political leanings. You've got some bluer and purple and bright red areas. What are the issues that they care about across the entire uh, district? Well, we definitely go from uh, deep red to the west to a more blue to the east uh, of this district. And as you mentioned, Center uh, Alberta Darling's uh, Senate district for many years. And uh, what the constituents there have experienced with her is that she was open and would listen and would act uh, to constituents' concerns. And I think I've been that same uh, same arena. She and I have uh, done 20-plus uh, bills uh, together and uh, successfully with three different governors, uh, Governor Doyle, Governor Walker, and now Governor Evers. So uh, they uh, appreciate somebody who can be accomplished, accomplish things uh, no matter who the governor is, and work across the aisle when necessary, as necessary, to govern. So any specific issues that voters are coming to you with, or is it generally kind of the, the sense of you need to figure out a way to work together because we need to move forward? Yeah, that would when what I've heard on the doors the most was to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, the inflationary pressures are tremendous. Uh, on uh, people, and that goes to tax reform. Uh, the inflationary pressures come more from Washington, but uh, we can use the tax burden here to help people with their budgets. And uh, education, always always a top uh, item. And then uh, crime, especially as this Senate district uh, is near city of Milwaukee, that crime factor we know it, we hear out in the news all the time, uh, is a growing and disturbing problem, and it has to be addressed. So you've been in elected office for more than 20 years now as a, a assembly representative. And so you're familiar with the, the halls of the Capitol. You're, you're familiar with the, the caucuses. You're familiar with the, the people and the players. What do you think is the greatest opportunity as a state in the upcoming budget cycle? As we know, the legislature joint finance is going to be in town tomorrow hearing from different constituencies about the matters to be put forth in this budget. Where where can we come together uh, to, to actually put something productive on the table? Hmm. Well, politics is the art of the possible, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be there tomorrow for, uh, for a while at that uh, public hearing, and uh, we do need to listen to uh, what people's main concerns are, but we're going to be successful as we have been the last two budget cycles to put together a prudent a sound fiscal document that the governor can sign, and he has signed the uh, the last two budgets, uh, so it's a bipartisan effort at the end of that day, and uh, I expect we'll we'll see accomplishments in uh, tax reform. Mm-hmm. We will see additional dollars uh, invested in our communities, particularly for infrastructure, roads, uh, etc. Uh, education, we fully expect that uh, protecting school choice and uh, keeping that program solid and growing has to be accomplished. So there, there may be some, there's got to be some back and forth, there's going to be some compromise, but I think we get those things accomplished. Well, and you've proven uh, in the, the legislature that it, that it can be done. Um, last session, the last budget that Governor Evers put forth was you know, basically rewritten and, and approved, and it did include some of those uh, tax reforms, which we, we really, really hope to see again. So on the ballot today, in addition to this election, there are a number of constitutional amendments. 
Which one is most important to you, or how do you see some of these playing out and, and resonating with the voters? Mm-hmm. Well, the bail reform uh, amendments are, are very important, and uh, this will help us to uh, place some accountability upon the judges. We know that, uh, particularly Milwaukee County, the circuit court judges uh, and prosecutors really have not done their job well uh, with setting low bails and soft sentencing. So this will at least address the bail portion of that, that they've got to take this person's past criminal history, their current and present danger to the community, uh, into their decision-making when setting bail. So that's why it's so important to make it a constitutional amendment that judges must follow this. And then that gives us accountability to oversee that the judges are doing just that. So very important to to address this crime uh, situation. The uh, welfare to work is simply, I think, a matter of reinforcing that that is the way our system had been, going back to Tommy Thompson's welfare to work uh, efforts, that uh, people need to be making the effort, these are childish, childless adults, that uh, are collecting some unemployment benefits, uh, but they're able to go to work, and they need to do just that. So you've run a number of campaigns throughout your career. Is there anything that stands out to you about this time around? Um, In fact, you ran just last year uh, for your assembly seat, but has anything surprised you uh, as we go into the spring election? Sure. Well, to be a, a one issue, as the, the Democrats want to make it one issue, uh, being being abortion, and I've been really surprised and quite saddened that the uh, the Democrat Party candidates will not even recognize that there's two lives that need to be taken into consideration, and I think both lives can be protected uh, mm-hmm. with our law, and that takes uh, time uh, through the legislative process, and I hope not through the courts. So, but I, but to not even recognize that there's two lives has been very saddening uh, to me. Uh, and then the the out of state presence and dollars that have come in to uh, to try to buy these uh, elections. And uh, my candidate, uh, opponent, excuse me, has about seventy percent of contributions coming from uh, out of state, and and that shows you where her who she'll be supporting or who she's got to respond mm-hmm. to versus Wisconsin residents in the 8th Senate District. Well, and it's certainly to to really hear from the voters and to realize and recognize, and, and as you do as someone who, has wor- who works in the building, um, there is an interest in moving forward and talking about compromise and how we move forward. Final question, uh, Dan, any last words? Uh, for the voters in Senate District 8 or, or voters throughout the state? Mm-hmm. Well, please do uh, get to the polls. This is it. This is the opportunity for people to make their voices heard. And uh, I think we're seeing that. So I hope uh, through the rest of the day that will get done. Uh, in my particular case, uh, I'm going to be the one on the ballot that uh, has the accomplishments, have shown and proven I can work both sides of the aisle with whoever the governor might be and uh, get things accomplished for for the betterment of all the people of the state of Wisconsin, particularly the 8th Senate District. So everybody out there, get on out to the polls and make democracy work. Great. Uh, Dan Canoto, candidate for Senate District 8. Election is today. The polls close at 8 p.m. Good luck to you, sir. Uh, We'll be watching. We'll be listening.
And then you can hopefully get some new shoes. That's on your agenda tomorrow, right? (laughs) That's that's correct. On Wisconsin. All right. When we come back, uh, we'll wrap on election and talk a little bit more about those uh, uh, constitutional amendments that are on the ballot today. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I feel like we can let that one ride. (laughs) Welcome back. Great to be with you. Filling in for Jeff Wagner, I am Tracy Johnson. In our final half hour of today's show, yeah, little Huey Lewis. Love it, love it, love it. All right, in the final segment of today's show, we're going to discuss the progress that has and has not been made related to the Amazon Labor Union, which shocked the world last April. In fact, I think I was actually in the studio uh, when this was all going down a year ago. So the the workers in New York, at a New York warehouse, Amazon warehouse, successfully formed the first U.S. union in the e-commerce giant's history. So, I mean, Amazon is biggest company, right? Thousands and thousands and thousands of employees. Well, they don't have a union uh, of Amazon workers and they're not affiliated with unions outside of the the company. So in April, uh, they formed uh, the Amazon Labor Union. They call themselves the ALU. And the president of the union is the guy as a guy by the name of Chris Smalls. And if you recall, he was uh, a former employee that was fired by Amazon in the early days of the pandemic and became quickly identified as a kind of a disgruntled employee and received a ton of attention, uh, went to the White House, took a lot of shots at Jeff Bezos, of course, as being an out of touch CEO saying, okay, Jeff Bezos is going to the moon and investing in his space program or while us normal people are all here on Earth working in this warehouse. Uh, but Chris and his kind of gang of, of union organizers has been struggling right now to get Amazon to the bargaining table to even develop a contract. And this is at the same time that they're trying to organize several other Amazon warehouses in the New York area. So they're really struggling to make any ground here because in order to have a contract you need two people two entities to come to the table and amazon is refusing to do that they're recognizing that this idea this union that this chris smalls and a group of people had put together and concocted really has no standing. And there's infighting uh, between some of the grass rights organizers. And for those who, who don't know, this structure is unique in the fact that uh, many unions are formed by connecting and affiliating with unions outside of the entity that is trying to bring in the union. And so it was actually kind of a, not the best, place to start for these organizers because they really didn't have any clout to begin with. So they aren't able to think out this bargaining strategy and they really don't have much leverage and Amazon is basically ignoring them. And in the end, I I actually think this fizzles out. This effort that was celebrated by some, 
But I think a lot of people were kind of looking at this and saying, you know, what does this mean for unions in some of these larger organizations and some of these larger companies that hadn't traditionally had them? And I think this fizzles out for a number of reasons. Um, not only was this disorganized, but Amazon as a company has always prided itself really in paying above market wages, very competitive wages to keep people there. Now, I can't speak to the work environment and the work conditions, uh, but, you know, as an employer, they certainly are trying to go to market and, and pay uh, what the, the workers are worth. I also think that warehouse workers are not the future for the global economy with the introduction of artificial intelligence and automation. And these individuals who were part of the labor union, I just don't think are really long for this world in terms of their value to the company. Because these companies and these organizations who face this resistance from workers are going to find another way to do it, whether it's through technology or automation. I mean, certainly they want to work with the workers to make sure that they're keeping uh, folks intact. But when they encounter that resistance, they have to find another way. So I think in the past couple of years, when we had such tight labor conditions, we saw the employees really having a lot of power at the table, figuratively and literally at the table. But I think we're starting to see that pendulum swinging back, whether we like it or not, to the employer and being able to make some of those demands fairly or unfairly. 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. Amazon doesn't need to come to the table, and they won't come to the table, just like a lot of these companies who were short-staffed for way too long and figured out a way to survive. That productivity is now realized through that automation. Is that what we're seeing going forward? Who has... The power in this relationship, is it the employees or the employers? 855-616-1620 on the old National Bank talk and text line. There's also an option C. And we'll talk about that when we come back. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. It is 2.47, almost 2.47. We're following a lot of breaking news today at the station. Uh, but talking through an issue that really came to light about a year ago, an Amazon facility in New York, as they were attempting to be the first uh, Amazon facility to unionize. And, you know, it's a fascinating story for me to watch. I started my career working with the labor unions. Uh, I spent some time working with the plumbing, mechanical and sheet metal and air conditioning contractors association. So I have a deep appreciation for uh, the process and the integrity of union workers and the unionization process. And so when I see these stories about a failed attempt at uh, formation of a union and really an attempt that had very little groundwork except for a disgruntled employee trying to really attempt something that had no merit, it is frustrating because of all the other people that it, it tends to hurt across the company because of 
the the organization's inability to effectively organize and effectively uh, bargain for uh, the needs and wants of those employees. But it really comes full circle to the question of, you know, are these types of workers in a warehouse really going to be the way of the future? And have these companies moved beyond the need for workers, whether they be union or not, to carry out the function of an Amazon facility? And in a day and age where artificial intelligence and uh, technology and robots are really taking over these jobs and the future of the job market has become fairly confusing, if that's the, the right word. It's not bleak. It's just confusing. Just the other day, I was talking to my cousin, who is a sophomore, a junior, sophomore, junior um, at Whitewater, and he was studying uh, computer science, actuarial science, actually. And he told me that he was switching his major because the outlook for that type of degree in some of the computer and actuarial science uh, field will be obsolete in just a few years because a lot of these skills that can be learned can also be automated. And so, you know, as you have the introduction of artificial intelligence, you're seeing a lot of jobs really being phased out. Now, at the same time, there is good news because these AI jobs are actually creating millions and millions of new jobs. And they're projecting that 97 million new jobs will be created by the year 2025. So uh, Forbes Technology Council actually has looked into this and they've named 15 different kind of career areas that will be most greatly affected by the introduction of AI, including insurance underwriting, warehouse and manufacturing jobs, customer service. We've all had that interaction with the customer service bots, uh, research and data entry, long haul trucking. We've seen kind of driverless vehicles come to the forefront and somewhat disconcertingly broad is the category titled any task that can be learned. So I think that's also kind of playing into uh, young people and, and old people, middle-aged people, me, <laughs> um, as we think about what is the s- security and the stability of our future employment and what is our kind of contribution to the workforce as we uh, move forward. This study goes on to say that accountants, factory workers, truckers, paralegals, and radiologists, just to name a few, have been and will be confronted by this disruption uh, in the next couple of years. So if you're working in a field right now, any of those fields, many fields, any field, healthcare, for example, with the introduction of telehealth, all of these things are being disrupted uh, with the introduction of artificial intelligence. And I think it, it's a matter of evolution, but also out of necessity, as you have different groups of people and different generations interested in certain types of career fields and certain types of uh, jobs as they're going through the workforce. I think this is just a fascinating uh, a fascinating topic to really delve into. Uh, the study does go on to say that industries that will always need humans, and this is, I love this, teachers. And, and I will do like a little asterisk side note. My cousin who said he's getting out of some of the computer science stuff said he wants to be a teacher. I thought, that's great. You can't replace teachers. 
you can't replace writers and editors. You can't replace lawyers, social workers, certain medical professionals, therapists, and then those management professionals. But there is no doubt that all of these areas, all of these fields will continue to be disrupted uh, as we move forward and as we move through uh, kind of this evolution where workers are sometimes they're in high demand and sometimes they're not. I know kind of tying into that whole idea of, of graduates, how are they looking at the world when so many of these jobs that were being created and these young people were going into at Amazon, Salesforce, Google, they're all being eliminated. All of these companies have had massive layoffs and have massive layoff plans moving forward as we face this uncertainty within our economy.